All right, I want to welcome everybody to Grace Community Church this morning. Do me a quick favor in the back. If you can hear me, just give me a thumbs up. And do me one more quick favor. If you're here this morning and you do not have a study guide, throw up a quick hand and we'll see if we can get some of the extras to you. Just hold your hand up for just a moment. While those study guides are going out, I want to welcome everyone here to our continuing study of the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 5. The book of Acts chapter 5. Let's pray together this morning as we begin. Father, we just sung to you, Lord, and one of the things that we confess and we do so gladly this morning is that we are children of weakness, Lord. We are children of weakness and we desire to confess, Lord, our weakness to you as it relates to anything that is righteous, anything that is holy, anything that we could do to please you or do for you, Lord. We find ourselves Apart from you, Lord, only weakness. And God, you have set the Christian life up in such a way, Lord, that you receive all glory for everything that pleases you. Everything that's done for you, that glorifies your name, Lord, you get the glory. And so, Lord, we ask, God, for your power, Lord, and your presence in this meeting today and in our lives. You say in your word that this, this excellent, uh, this surpassing excellent power, Lord, that you give it to jars of clay, to earthen vessels, Lord, so that the glory goes to you and not to us. God, do that in this local church. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Fill us with power. God, I pray today that you would remind each and every one of us, Lord, that you are a God of tremendous power. Tremendous strength, Lord. And for every time we confess to you that we cannot, Lord, 10,000 10, times more we can confess that you can, that you are able, that, that nothing is impossible for you. Lord, make us a people of faith that apprehend your power to live a life that pleases you, to do things that glorify you. Come draw near to us today, Lord, and use the preaching of your word. To encourage us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, last week, as we're coming through the book of Acts, I'll remind us of a theme that we bumped into last week as Ryan was preaching to us. One of the things that we've been talking about the past few weeks is the transitional nature of the book of Acts. And we've reminded several times over of the problems that you can run into with reading and studying the book of Acts and never seeing it as a book of transitions. That there's some real transitions that are taking place that we must be aware of. And one of the things that we've been giving attention to in the last couple of weeks is, is there's a real transition taking place in the book of Acts that, that relates to the presence of God. Okay? And for several, several thousand years, 
Um, at, up to this point, uh, for several thousand years, the presence of God has dwelt in a temple in Jerusalem. The dwelling place of God, the most holy place on planet Earth was in this Jerusalem temple. And we're studying about that transition. No longer the presence of God in the Jerusalem temple. The presence of God is now in the new temple, the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God. This is what we were looking at last week together, that God now dwells in his church. Okay, New temple. And that's an encouraging thing for us to remind ourselves that God is with us. We are not alone when we gather together this morning or anytime in the name of Jesus. God dwells in the midst of his church. We are a temple, a spiritual temple, a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that we got into last week is that as God comes and begins to dwell in this new people, things begin to happen. Okay? There are fruits of, of the presence of God. There are fruits that accompany God dwelling in the midst of his people. And Ryan mentioned two things last week that I want to remind you of very quickly. Two fruits of the presence of God as he mentioned unity and holiness. Unity and holiness. And so you remember that last week. We are seeing a, a, a move of the Spirit of God. And we're seeing the people of God uh, empty their pockets and, and, and walk away from their possessions in order to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're supposed to understand that is that's a move of God. They don't get a standing ovation for that. God did that in, in that local church. He's unifying them. They're one mind. They're going after this thing together. Tremendous unity in the local church. And then we also saw that another fruit of the presence of God in the midst of his people was holiness. And I can't think of a more vivid example of purity in the local church and holiness when we studied that, that our God lashed out in judgment in the midst of his church and he killed a married couple for lying to the Holy Spirit. And again, this is a fruit of the presence of God. God is dwelling in the midst of his people and he's creating unity. Okay? God is dwelling in the midst of his people and he's creating holiness. This is what it means to be a temple. And what we're going to do today is we're going to add one more fruit to that list of two, and we're going to make it three. And the thing that we're going to see going straight forward in Acts chapter 5 is that another fruit of the presence of God, of God dwelling in the midst of his people, is power. Power. We're going to read that in our text together. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 5. And let's pick it up this morning in verse 12. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them. In high things. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow 
might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed. This is the word of God for Grace Community Church this morning. And to the members of Grace Community Church, I want to get your ear for just a moment. Really for every believer in the room, but especially to the members of Grace Community Church. I want us to be reminded on the front end that our Father in Heaven, how important is it that we know who God is? That we know who our Father in Heaven is? That we know what He is like? And my reminder to us on the front end is we are coming face to face with a text of Scripture that reminds us that our Father in Heaven is a God of tremendous power. Tremendous power. You're going to get a reminder from God's Word today about how powerful our God is. And the warning to us as we approach this text of Scripture and text of Scripture like this is carrying man-made boundaries into the Word of God. And I want to remind us of that, that our God is a God of power. And all those man-made boundaries that we would place upon Him, He will explode them. He will tear them down. This is who He is, a God of tremendous power. And so the reminder on the front end, okay, and you know this, you know who your Father is. He is not domesticated, okay, that's not the God of Scripture, He's not tame, okay? He does not exist to make you feel comfortable with your personal preferences and your worldview and how you've always thought. That's not who He is, and that's not why He exists, okay? He is a God of matchless power. And so we have to be careful of carrying man-made boundaries into God's Word. The, the one true God, listen closely, He will not. He refuses to bow to human rationale, to human logic, to human limits of understanding. We have, we have all those things that we, we are tremendously tempted to, to carry that into God's Word and to understand God in a human way. And He refuses to fit into our category. And we need to be reminded of that. We need to, we need to let God be who He says He is in Scripture, and one of the ways that He reveals Himself to us is a God of power. God of power. The King of the universe. The one who has all authority, listen close, in heaven and on earth. There's not one ounce of power or authority that does not belong to God, to Jesus, on His throne. We're going to see Him manifest this power. In Acts chapter 5, He's going to show this power in two ways. We're going to talk about this this morning. We're going to see the power of God shown through explosive church growth and people getting saved. And we're going to, we're going to see that as a display of the power of God. And we're going to step back for a moment and we're going to worship Jesus for the power that is displayed when He saves someone from their sins. And even more so when He saves a multitude from their sins. And then the next way we're going to see the power of God displayed in Acts chapter 5 is through miracles. Okay? God's going to display His power through uh, miraculous works. We're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to take a step back. We're going to worship Him that there's none like Him. 
in heaven or on earth that stretches out his hand, shows himself to be the living God, not an idea that we study, but a person that rules and reigns over his creation. We're going to see that. Those will be our first two headings this morning. We're going to walk through this text together. And then we're going to finish today. We're going to pause and we're going to, we're going to think about this, that we're seeing God displayed in matchless power. And we're going to ask ourselves this question. How are we supposed to be living in light of these, these things that we see about God and his word? What's our daily life supposed to look like if we rightly respond to this power that is being shown, uh, revealed to us in God's word? So that's where we're headed this morning. Okay. God is a God of power. Let's dig into this text together. I want us to start right in the middle of this paragraph in verse 14. And I'll read it to us again. It says this. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. And so look at some of the detail we have here. Okay, We're, we're calling uh, ourselves to remember these words that there was this moment okay, in the book of Acts in real church history there was this moment where more than ever believers are added to the Lord okay? multitudes okay? hundreds are being added to the Lord men, women, more than ever they're being added to the Lord so we're talking about salvation explosive church growth and we want to press into that idea that shows the power of Jesus Christ Okay? And before we get there this morning, I want to handle something uh, that's really important um, in, in this regard. That, that when we look at this paragraph, okay, there are many displays of the power of Jesus. We got signs and wonders, we got uh, miracles, we got healings, we got exorcisms, and then verse 14, we got salvation from sin. So the very first reminder that I want to give to us today, okay is how we're supposed to think about salvation from sin side by side with miraculous works of God, okay? And here's the reminder for us, and it might be new information for you today, that salvation from sin has always been more superior than miracles, okay? Another way to say this is miracles are good, they're works of God, but salvation is better, and I want to convince you of that from God's word. We are told from God's word that salvation is better than miracles. It shows more of God's power, more of God's glory than miracles. For starters, I want us to remember that salvation is a more difficult work than a miracle. Okay? A miracle is a display of God's power, but salvation from sin caused the Lord Jesus Christ to be hammered to a cross for your sins. Jesus had to bleed to bring about your salvation. Jesus has to speak to bring about miracles. And so I want us to remember what he told us about this in Mark chapter 2, that salvation is greater than miracles. Okay? In Mark chapter 2, he, he says this question. Okay, he's staring at a paralytic. He's staring at some of his enemies. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus says, Which is easier? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, Rise, 
Take up your bed and walk. So notice the question. Okay, think about that. Jesus said, which is easier to say? And he doesn't mean physically to say. They're both just as easy to say those words. He's asking them, what's the more difficult word? The healing or forgiveness of sin? Listen to how he answers this question. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus is teaching us in this question and in his response and even in this miracle that if Jesus is able to do the easier thing, pick up your bed and go home, then Jesus is able to do the harder thing. Your sins are forgiven. Salvation is more glorious than miracles. Okay? You are supposed to be more overwhelmed that your sins are forgiven than you would be if Jesus said to you, rise, take up your bed and go home. Salvation is a harder work. It's more glorious. It's a greater display of God's power. Jesus also taught us this in regards to the demonic world and authority over demons and exorcism. I'll remind us of this in Luke chapter 10. Verse 19, listen to the words of Christ again. He says this, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you see this, brothers and sisters? He is telling us that it is more glorious that your name is written in heaven than it is when you give an authoritative command to unclean spirits in the name of Jesus and they obey you. More glorious to have your name written in heaven than to be used by God to drive out demonic spirits from people who are tormented. Salvation is a greater display of God's power than miracles. It's more amazing to know that our names are written in heaven than it is for God to perform a miraculous healing or for God to drive out demonic spirits. Okay? Now... I say all that to say this, that there are a lot of problems that are caused when miracles are exalted above salvation. When they're given a place that, that, that God's word does not give them, we, we run into all types of problems of people focusing on miracles and getting their eyes off of Christ. The, the crucified and resurrected Lord of forgiveness of sin, of people see, being saved eternally, saved from their sins. All kind of problems happen when we don't have this grid. That salvation is more glorious than miracles. Much less when, when King Jesus flexes his might and not one or two get saved, which that's glorious. One gets saved and it says the angels in heaven begin to rejoice. But we're talking about multitudes. Okay? How much power, how much glory 
Does that show Jesus revealing in this world, stretching out his hand and showing how powerful he is in this world? So let's ask ourselves this question. Why? So I get that. I get that. Okay, salvation, Jesus said it twice. Salvation is more glorious than miracles. But you keep saying that salvation from sin shows the power of God. And I want you to think about that. Why? Why, why would salvation from sin show the power of God? I mean, we're re- reading about believers. Okay? And you might be scratching your head this morning and say, wait a second, wait a second. They believe. They believe the gospel and were added to the Lord. But you're saying that salvation reveals the power of God, the power of Jesus. And we have to, we have to understand this issue, okay? That salvation does not glorify man for making a good decision. Salvation glorifies Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners. And so this glorious thing happens in the book of Acts and all throughout church history. Somebody gets saved and, and we don't begin to give them a standing ovation. Uh, sir or ma'am, I want to tell you you made the best decision that you've ever made in your entire life. You will never regret it. We don't do that. Someone puts their faith in Christ and we begin to worship and praise Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving that soul. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? They believe and we praise Christ. And this takes us back to the same thing that we see over and over again in the book of Acts. That God is sovereign over salvation. Okay? God is sovereign over salvation. We believe. God does not believe for us. We repent. God does not repent for us. But what we see over and over again in the word of God. That prior to us believing. Prior to us repenting, King Jesus has to do a sovereign work in the human heart. Or we will never repent or believe. This is why salvation glorifies the power of Christ. I want to give you two texts for this to be really clear to you. That these two things have to happen before a human being is saved. Before they repent. Before they believe the gospel. So turn just a few pages back in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 2. And I want to remind us that 3,000 people were saved on the day of Pentecost. Okay? They responded to the gospel, they received it, and they were baptized. But I want to remind us of something that we're told happened prior to them receiving the word of the gospel. Look at verse 37. We've talked about this verse several times in our trip through Acts that they heard the gospel and then verse 37 tells us that they were cut to the heart. Who did that? Did they take out the knife and begin slicing, slicing up their insides? This is a reference to the Holy Spirit's work in their life that he stabbed them in the heart. This is a metaphor That communicates conviction of sin. That as they're hearing this glorious gospel about what Jesus has done and their personal guilt. As they're hearing those words, the Spirit of God takes out His sword and slices their heart. And they begin to bleed conviction. 
And they feel unclean before God, dirty before God. They feel like they're in danger before God. And they begin to say, what must I do to be saved? Do you know, do you know that a person will never believe the gospel without experiencing conviction of sin? Surely that makes sense to us, right? If salvation is salvation from sin and wrath, then for a person to flee to Jesus Christ for salvation from sin, they have to be made aware of sin. And this is a glorious work that our God does prior to us responding to the gospel. This is why we look back in our life to those holy moments where God began to show us our sins. To show us that we are unclean. And we praise God for those moments. That God broke through the hardness. And he opened our eyes to who we truly are. In the presence of God. This is a necessary work. Or someone will never believe the gospel. Second text is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We find out. In verse 4. That lost humanity is described as being blinded by Satan. Okay? And then specifically in that text, it tells us that they are blind to the gospel, listen closely, of the glory of Christ. Blind to the glory of Christ. And surely you've experienced this in your own life and in different responses to evangelism. That verse does not teach that lost people can't understand some facts about Jesus. Yes, Bible says Jesus is God. Yes, Bible says Jesus died on the cross. Yes, Bible says that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That's not what they're blind to. That verse says they're blind to the glory of Christ. That means that they hear all those things and they don't give a rip about Jesus. They see no value in the words that you just spoke about the Son of God. They understand it, but they can't see the beauty of it, the gravitas, the glory, the majesty of Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected from the dead. Why? Because they're blind. They're blind. Satan has blinded their minds. Now the question for us, Something has to happen to that blind one before they ever respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And what happens? What has to happen? Does the Bible tell us that they tear Satan's hands off their eyes and make themselves not blind anymore? And all of a sudden, the ones who did not see the glory of Christ see the glory of Christ because they're stronger than Satan and they, wrap, and they unwrap their own eyes. That's not the solution. Okay? In fact, two verses later, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we are told exactly how God overcomes this blindness. Look at what, look at what, we, look at what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Prior to believing the gospel, blindness has to be overcome. How does God overcome it? 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, The same God that created light. The same God who said, let there be light. The same God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Think Genesis 1. God said it and it was. The word of God tells us that he exercises that same sovereign creative authority in the human heart. The same God that created light turned the lights on 
in your heart. And you know what that text says? That for the first time in your life, after that happened, you saw the glory of Jesus Christ. You heard the message of the gospel and it wasn't nonsense to you. It wasn't background noise. You heard it as the best news that you have ever heard in your entire life. That God loved you. That he sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for your sins. That Jesus has done everything necessary to save you from your sins. And you hear it as good and glorious news. Do you know why? Because you had the lights turned on. In your heart, the same God that created light and said, let there be light, did something on your insides to your heart. Brothers and sisters, this has to happen or nobody will ever respond to the gospel. Nobody will ever respond to the gospel without this sovereign work on the human heart. Now, a lot of people argue about this. A lot of people have some wrong ideas about this. About God's sovereignty over human salvation. But I just want to encourage you with this thought. Okay? The Bible teaches this. And you, and you believe this. Okay? Every person in this room, you believe this if you pray for lost people. Do you understand that? If you pray for someone who is not saved. And you pray to God. You go to God in the name of Jesus. And you begin to unload requests to God on their behalf. You're asking God to do a sovereign work in their life. You believe this. You believe that God is powerful. That if God moves in their life, nothing can stop Him. And so think about your prayer life. When you pray for lost people, we don't say things like, God, help them make a good decision. Help them make the best decision of their life. Help, help, help them not to make a foolish decision. We don't pray like that. And even that request is getting into God working on the human heart. Help them make a good decision. But I want you to think about how we pray for lost people. God, stab them in the heart with conviction of sin. Lord, their whole life, they've seen themselves as a good person. But you are able to expose in a moment their uncleanness before you. Come upon them, Lord, and convict them of their sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, work in their lives. Turn the lights on in their life. When they hear the gospel, Lord, turn the lights on. Let them hear the glory of Jesus Christ. Don't let them be blinded by Satan any longer. Use your power. Save their soul. Every time we pray, we're asking God to use this power to save sinners. And not only that, not only do we pray to the God of power who brings about salvation, but when someone turns to the Lord, when someone gets saved from their sins, what do we do? We don't give them a clap. Like we said before, we don't tell them that you've made the best decision of your life. Think about people that you love that have stepped out of darkness and into light. What do you do? You praise Christ. Jesus, you saved them. It was a hopeless situation. They were 10 feet under in a spiritual grave. They were dead in their sins. And you called them to life. You are the God of salvation. Praise to your name, Lord Jesus. Thank you for salvation from sin. That their name is written in heaven by your power. This is why the Bible tells us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
It is his. He owns it. He brings it about. And every time it happens, it's God flexing his power and flexing his authority. Think about this. Every salvation is a display of the power of God. And one of the things that we can get stuck into thinking is this idea that there's a good testimony and there's, you know, kind of an average testimony. Okay? And that sometimes sounds like this for people that got saved, you know, when they were six, seven, and eight, and people that look back and they can't remember a time where they didn't trust in Jesus Christ. And they hear about these powerful deliverances from drug addiction, homosexuality. And, and they can get stuck into thinking really silly things like, man, I wish I had a drug addiction. You know, like seriously, seriously, because then I would have a good testimony, a powerful testimony. But once we understand this about salvation, that every salvation is a display of God's power, then we understand that there's no such thing as a bo boring testimony. No such thing. Do you understand when God saves a six-year-old little boy? Do you understand what the scripture says happens in that moment? Spiritual death to spiritual life. Every salvation is a resurrection from the dead. Think about what we just sung to Christ. We, 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 we didn't sing, you know, this, this wrong idea of a really good testimony. We said, oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Every believer sings that to him. Because every testimony testifies to the power of God to save. So we're seeing him stretch out his hand and show unthinkable power and authority in Acts chapter 5 to bring about salvation from sin. Last thing I want us to think about before we move forward is when we see these Glimpses of God building his church and people being saved. I want to remind us that God does not exercise this power to save apart from his word. Okay? He does not exercise this power to save apart from his word. It's not like that. It never happens like that. This power is displayed when the word of God is preached. And isn't that an interesting thing? Okay. That we see this, this spiritual power manifested. Bringing about salvation from sin. But just a few verses earlier. We read these words in Acts chapter 4. Verse 31. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you see that? Do you see that? That the seed was being put into the ground and then a harvest came by the power of God. And it always works like that. Okay, God's power to save is married to his word. The power of the spirit of God is married to the word of God. The word of God. And what that means for us as a local church is if we want to see a measure of this power, God display his power to save in our midst, then we're reminded of our responsibilities. That we have a response. We can't bring about a harvest. I don't know about you. I mean, I kind of do, but I don't know how you think, but you can't turn the lights on, on in someone's heart. You can't. You cannot overcome blindness 
to Christ in someone's life. You can't. You cannot. The Spirit of God has to bring about that harvest. But our role in the harvest is evangelism. It's evangelism. And this reminds me of Luke chapter 8 when Jesus talked about God's Word. You know, one of the things that He told us about the Word of God, He says this in Luke 8 verse 11, He says, the seed is the Word of God. The seed is the Word of God. So we have that agriculture, you know, metaphor. And if we want to see a harvest, we got to plant seeds. You understand that? So a church that doesn't evangelize but wants to see people get saved is as silly as a, har- as a farmer who wants a harvest but won't put seeds in the ground. You understand that? That's the means that God uses to bring about this sovereign work, evangelism. All right? Well, let's cut off one discouragement that pops into our mind when we think about faithfully speaking about Jesus Christ. How are people going to respond to us? What if somebody doesn't listen to me? Okay? What if they reject me? What if I look foolish or silly? How are people going to respond to us if we faithfully speak of Jesus Christ? And the answer to that is simple. They're going to respond to us the same way they responded to Jesus and the same way they responded to the apostles. Okay? And all throughout church history. And over and over again, as you read the Gospels, you are introduced to three groups of people. Okay? The religious leaders, the disciples, and then the mushy middle that's called the crowds. That's the word that Mark's Gospel especially uses to describe the mushy middle. The crowds. And we're to expect that same response. That we're going to preach Jesus Christ faithfully. And guess what? Some are going to aggressively oppose us. Okay? Maybe even violently oppose us. And Ryan encouraged us a few weeks ago. We just have to settle that on the front end. Okay? We are going to be opposed. And then we're made aware, and especially in verse 13, of this mushy middle. That, that we're going to preach Christ and another response is going to be indifference. That, you know, oh yeah, I think really good thoughts of y'all. Really, you know, uh, you know, really think a lot of the stuff about that church is good. But but not decisively committed to follow Jesus Christ. Mushy middle. Okay? And isn't that interesting that it's always been that way? Verse 13, we're told about a group that esteems the Christians but refuses to join the Christians. There's no better description of nominal Christianity than that. They're fans of Jesus. They happily agree with some of Jesus' teachings. But they are not decisively committed to follow Jesus Christ. Mushy middle crowds. So as we preach Jesus, we're going to face that over and over and over again. But you know the encouraging thing for us is verse 14 is sitting right there. That as we faithfully preach Christ, yes, we will be opposed. Yes, some people just will not care what you say. But as we faithfully put that seed in the ground, we can trust God to do this, to bring multitudes to the Lord, that some are going to hear the gospel and get saved. Jesus is going to use his word in some of their life. And so I want you to think about this. How many times is it worth being rejected for you to be responsible and used by God to bring about salvation in one person's life? hundred times? 
That'd be enough. Would that, that be worth it for you? Cost benefit analysis that I'm going to get rejected a hundred times, but I'm going to be used by God to plant this seed in this person's life that grows up into eternal life, salvation from sin forever. Would that be worth it? What about a couple of hundred? Do you see this encouragement that we, when we lean in and we can really believe that as we sow seed, God will save souls and encourages us to speak for Christ. No matter how many times uh, we're rejected or, or people refuse to hear us. And one of the things that we've been really stirred up to pray in the last couple of weeks, especially coming out of Acts chapter 4, verse 31, that description of every church member filled with the Holy Spirit and boldly speaking for Jesus Christ. We've been asking God to do that. Been asking God to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Not just this idea of these Green Beret Christians, Special Forces Christians. What we want to see is Acts chapter 4, verse 31. All of us filled with the Holy Spirit and faithfully speaking about Jesus Christ. We're asking God to do that at Grace Community Church. One of the things specifically that we've been asking God to do is to tear open opportunities for the gospel. That God would open up doors for his word. And we're seeing God answer those prayers in a powerful way, even, even last week. So this is our responsibility. We see the power of God on display is we have to put that seed in the ground. Second way we see the power of God displayed in this text is through miracles. Through miracles. Verse 12 calls them signs and wonders. I want us to spend just a few minutes talking about what is a miracle. This can help to clarify a lot of disagreement around this issue. Initially, in a general sense, we can say that miracles are God-glorifying acts of power. God-glorifying acts of power. But we really do need to get more specific than that. Okay, We need to carefully define it a little further than that. Because miracle, that word can be used in a broad sense. And in a narrow sense, I want to talk to you about the broad sense first. I want you to think about how common that word miracle is attached to things like the following. Okay, we see, especially, you know, when we become parents, you know, for the first time, we're overwhelmed with the, the detail and the intricacy of, of, of life being created and knit together in the womb. And then the beauty and, and, and the glory that, that is, is shown to God when that life is born into this world, that God did that. So maybe you've heard that before, that childbirth is a miracle, miraculous, okay? General sense, broad sense. What about um, a sudden rescue from death? Maybe you're in a really dangerous situation. And, you know, you're, you're in um, uh, a, a road late at night and somebody's coming right at you. is about to smash you into smithereens and you call out to God. And all of a sudden, at the very last minute, they veer off and miss your car by six inches. And you say, it's a miracle. Okay, I thought I was dead and it was a miracle. This is a broad sense. Okay, what about a beautiful sunset on top of a mountain? overwhelming, breathtaking beauty of God's creation. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. What about a surprising answer to prayer? 
Or God answers one of your prayers and catches you in surprise. And you really didn't think he was going to do it. And then he does it. And you say, it's a miracle. You see the broad way that we use that word. It can be used in a broad and a general sense. And then I want to narrow that down that it can be also be used in a narrow sense. Okay? And really the difference I want you to see okay, is, that, is that we're not talking in a narrow sense that everything that makes you go awe, that everything that inspires awe and wonder in a narrow sense is not a miracle. Okay? Some things happen in, a, in an ordinary uh, frequency. Okay? Childbirth is amazing. Childbirth happens every day. Okay? It is amazing, but it is ordinary. Okay? Same idea with people being rescued from death at the last minute. It's amazing. Okay? God does that. But it's ordinary. Okay? And when miracle is used in a more narrow sense, we're talking about something that is extraordinary. Okay? And when the Bible speaks about miracles in this narrow sense, calls them in verse 7, signs and wonders. Okay? So when you think about that word, I want you to think narrow, not broad. Think things that are extraordinary, not things that are ordinary. By definition, a sign and a wonder is not a common thing. It's an uncommon thing. So there, there are, they are very unusual events, and they're recorded uh, throughout Scripture in many different places. Let's name just a few. Signs and wonders and miracles. Signs and wonders were unleashed on the nation of Egypt. If you remember those plagues that God brought about on Pharaoh and on that nation. It says over and over again that God stretched out his hand and did signs and wonders in Egypt. And he brought his people out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Just a, just a few, you know, a little while later, reading through Exodus, we find out. That on the way out of Egypt, more miracles, signs and wonders. So they're, you know, about to be overwhelmed by the Egyptian army. And what does God do? The Bible says that God splits the Red Sea in half and that the children of Israel walk across on dry ground. Okay? A massive multitude of people. And then the Bible says that God collapses those waters and brings them back and drowns an entire Egyptian army. Extraordinary miracles. Okay? Nobody's doing that across the reservoir this afternoon. This is not, you know, just a, you know, any day that ends with why, waters start parting. Extraordinary signs and wonders. Let's keep thinking. Keep reading the Bible and you find more of these signs and wonders. In the book of Joshua... You find uh, they're about to take the city of Jericho and they march around this city. And then the Bible tells us that a rock wall falls to the ground at a shout. The shout of Israel's army, the blast of Israel's trumpet, signs and wonders. Again, extraordinary. Okay, nobody's tearing down uh, stone walls with their voice today. Right extraordinary signs and wonders. Keep going in the book of Joshua. Um, the, the armies of Israel are about to take over their enemies in Joshua chapter 10. And Joshua prays this prayer. Son, stand still. 
And the Bible tells us that the sun stood still for an entire day. It did not go down. The sun stayed still for an entire day while Israel uh, defeated her enemies. Again, extraordinary signs and wonders. Very unusual. Very unique. Going forward in the Old Testament, we're told that many miracles and signs and wonders happen through Elijah and Elisha. Okay? Uh, in fact, we're told that both of those prophets raised a boy from the dead. Old Testament prophets raising a little boy from the dead. And then we come to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And miracles begin to explode. What has been periodic and unusual and uncommon and extraordinary... Jesus steps on the scene and is anointed with the Spirit of God and miracles start flying around everywhere. It's almost like every page that you read in the Gospels, especially the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, somebody is getting healed. And very often you read the words and they were all healed. And then you bump in the very next paragraph that Jesus is driving out demons and they were all uh, all who were tormented by, by demons were healed all over the place. Signs and wonders, healings, exorcisms. We, we read the Gospels and we bump into nature miracles. Almost every page of the Gospels, we see the Lord Jesus Christ take a few loaves and a few fish and explode them and multiply them in the middle of a wilderness to feed thousands of people. That's Jesus. That's who He is. And then we, we, we're, we get zoned in on these little glimpses and accounts of the power of Jesus Christ. Such as this one night where He's taking a quiet stroll walking on top of the Sea of Galilee. The Lord of nature. Signs and wonders. Okay, Extraordinary acts of power. Extraordinary acts of power. Miracles in this narrow sense, okay, they assault reality as we know it. That means that we experience creation in a certain way our entire life. And when God does a miracle in this narrow sense, that assaults everything that we have ever known about reality. That stuff, whoa, 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 never seen that before. And what miracles do is reveal the presence of God. That the living God just stepped down into His world and flecked His might and His power in an extraordinary way. Now let me say this. How can we believe this stuff in a society that's advanced as we are? Okay? I mean, all across the room, we got some smart people in here. The PhDs, doctors... A uh, lot, of, lot of graduate degrees. Um, how are we an advanced people? How are we supposed to believe stuff like the sun stood still? How are we supposed to believe stuff like you really believe a man walked on the Sea of Galilee? Are you kidding me? How are we supposed to believe in stuff like that? And really, I want to encourage you that this issue is settled in the first verse of the Bible. You choke on the first verse of the Bible, you'll choke on miracles all the way through. What you do with the first verse of the Bible determines what you will do with the supernatural and the miraculous every time you see it. Because the Bible tells us in the very beginning, lays its cards on the table, 
This is, we're not a bag of stardust. We're not just uh, human hormones wrapped in skin. We're image bearers of God. We are made by the creator of the ends of the earth. And he made us with the word of his mouth. He made everything in six days by speaking it into existence. So the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you believe that, miracles aren't a problem for you at all. If you believe that God made everything that is with his mouth, of course, all this other stuff is child's play compared to God speaking creation into existence. But listen closely. If you choke on that, if you choke on it, if you say, I don't know what I really think about that, then you're going to stumble over every supernatural thing that's revealed in Holy Scripture. Every one of them. All the way to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By which you cannot be saved unless you trust that he was raised from the dead. What you do with Genesis 1 is what you're going to do with miracles all the way through. Alright, in Acts chapter 5, these miracles get very specific. Okay, They are specifically defined as miracles of healing. Look at verse 15, I'll read it again. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. I want us to visualize this. Read yourself into this story to try to get a picture of what God is telling us happened. Look at those last words. They were all healed. And then zone back just a little bit. Who is they? Not just a few. We're told in these two verses of Scripture that all the sick in Jerusalem... And all the sick in surrounding cities. Listen, listen. This is the words that the Holy Spirit used. They were all healed. Metropolitan area and the surrounding cities. All of them healed. And just to add on top of it, by a shadow. We're talking about a unique, extraordinary display of God's power. And so here's the thing that I want us to come face to face with. Okay. We read scripture and we see that God heals and we say, well, I believe God still heals today. And that's a good that's a good question. That's a good response. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But I want to encourage you that to deal honestly with this passage of scripture, you have to go further than that. Okay. This is not a generic general sense as God healed then. And I believe God heals now, look at what the text says. God eradicated sickness from a metropolitan area in Acts chapter 5. Does God do that today? I'll say that again. This is not God healed then and God heals now. It's more specific than that. God emptied a metropolitan area of sickness. Does he still do that today? If you're going to be honest with the text, that's the question that you have to ask. That you have to ask. And so let's think about this. 
What would it look like if Acts chapter 5 happened in Jackson, Mississippi? An honest gaze. If we saw a display like this in Jackson, Mississippi and the surrounding cities, what would happen? Within one month, every hospital in Jackson, Mississippi would close. They would have to close because they would have no one to treat. And so I want you to imagine a Jackson, Mississippi where St. Dominic shuts down, UMC shuts down, all the Merit Health shuts down, Central Mississippi shuts down. All the patients are gone. Why? Because the power of God is emptying the Jackson metro area of human sickness. And what a, what a glorious thing that would be. Okay? And I say that knowing that there's a lot of medical professionals in here. We got, we got nurses at this church. You'd be finding a new line of work. Okay? Doctors at this church finding a new line of work. We got uh, our decimetrist brother, this cancer destroyer, and, and Chris Dunaway, all of a sudden he's selling real estate. Who knows what he's doing? There's no more cancer to destroy in Jackson, Mississippi. And so this is what we're talking about. Okay? Narrow sign and wonder, a major metropolitan area emptied of human sickness. Does God still do that today? Does God still do that today? The answer to that question, I hope, will become clearer by this next point. Look at verse 12. Who are doing these miracles? Who are doing these extraordinary signs and wonders? And the Bible tells us. We don't have to guess. The Bible says these words. Through the hands of the apostles. These signs and wonders were being done. Now, that does not just happen one time in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, you're talking about spiritual power unveiled in the book of Acts like almost nowhere else in Scripture. Why does that book over and over again draw us to the uniqueness of the apostles? That this power is being poured out uniquely through a few, not through everybody. Why does it say that? Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. Why does it say that? Why doesn't it just say through everybody? Why does it say through the apostles? Why Acts chapter 5, through the hands of the apostles? Why Acts 19, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, who is an apostle. Why that emphasis? Why is God the Holy Spirit? This is not putting God in a box. This is honoring the box that God put himself in. You understand this? Why is God telling us over and over again that the power is being poured out through these chosen instruments? The apostles. Why is he doing that? And that takes us to the next question. What is the purpose of miracles? What is the purpose of miracles? Something unique about these apostles and these chosen witnesses, these chosen instruments to deliver the gospel of Jesus once for all to the world. And one of the things that we see emerge as we study God's word holistically is we see over and over again that miracles confirm revelation from God. Miracles confirm who true prophets of God are and who true apostles of Jesus are. Okay? Let's just look at a few of these. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. 
chapter 17. Remember I told you that both Elijah and Elijah, the prophet, raised someone from the dead, raised a young boy from the dead in the Old Testament. Well, I want us to zone in on Elijah and what happens immediately after this resurrection. Okay? First Kings chapter 17, verse 24. This is the, the, the boy's mother. And the woman said to Elijah, so after this went down, after this resurrection from the dead, the woman said to Elijah these words, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. It's true. Catch that. Okay? The response and the reflex of the woman that saw her son raised from the dead was not only, God, you're amazing, you raised him from the dead. Her response and her reflex was to turn to the messenger of God and say, and say these words, because you did that, now I know that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. It's true. That sign and that wonder confirmed the word that Elijah was speaking. I wonder if this holds true throughout the rest of Scripture. Remember back in Acts chapter 2. This is even told us in regards to Jesus. Even Jesus' ministry was confirmed by signs and wonders. Acts chapter 2 verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. What was God's attestation of Jesus? The Bible tells us signs and wonders. Shows us that He is who He really said He was. And that what He said was the truth from heaven, truth from God. Even Jesus, even Jesus appealed to His works and His wonders as His confirmation that He truly was the Son of God. John chapter 5, verse 36. And the works that the Father has given me to accomplish... The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So we see over and over again that these signs and wonders are confirming prophets. That is a true prophet. That is not a true prophet. That's a true son of God. That is not the true son of God. That's a true apostle. That's not a true apostle. In fact, listen to these words in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. The Apostle Paul says this, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Stop right there. The signs of a true apostle. Okay. Now think for just a moment. If this is what signs and wonders were intended to do. Is to confirm who a true prophet of God is, who a true apostle of God is, then by definition, they're not for everybody. Because everybody's not a true a prophet and a true apostle. Signs and wonders in this narrow sense has never been intended to be a common thing, an ordinary thing, always been intended to be an uncommon thing and an extraordinary thing to confirm the true prophets of God. It's always been like this. So we have to stare at these verses in Scripture that put tremendous distance between us and the apostles. 
And in fact, to be more honest, pushed tremendous distance between the early church and the apostles. Even in the early church where the Spirit of God is being poured out in power, you have miracles done by the apostles that are not being done by every other believer. They're not intended to be a common thing. They're called the signs of a true apostle. So the question is not God healed then and God does God heal now. The question is God emptied metropolitan areas of human sickness then. Does God still do that now? Are these narrow apostolic signs and wonders for, for today? And the answer is no. The apostle Paul called himself the last apostle. You understand that? There are no apostles today. He said he was the last one. And so it's just a, it's just a logical follow-up that if there are no apostles today, then there are no apostolic signs today. Okay? No apostolic signs. No, nobody uh, is being attested as a true prophet of God. Nobody is writing books that we're going to tack on the back of the book of Revelation in our Bible. Now, some of you might write really good books, but not a good book that good. Okay? You're not unique messengers of the revelation of God. And so I want you to think about signs and wonders in that narrow sense. And then I want us to pivot and stare this question in the face. Wait a second. Wait a second. All that stuff. You're saying God doesn't do that stuff anymore. Um, um, that, that, that God was like this then. But he's, but he's not like this now. And so I want us to stare this question right in the face. We're seeing miraculous manifestations of the power of God. And you as a disciple of Jesus. I want you to have some light. How are you supposed to be living in light of miracles? In light of the tremendous power of God. And so I got three things that I want to mention as we close today. Okay. How are we supposed to live in light of what we're studying today in Acts chapter 5? And the very first thing that I want to mention is that we have to put distance between us and the apostles. Amen? Amen? Do you want me and Ryan to start claiming that, that title for ourselves at Grace Community Church? Apostle Dustin and Apostle Ryan. That's something that you want at Grace Community Church. And about 50 of you are saying, no way. In fact, if you try to do that, we're going we're gonna to physically hurt you and remove you from this church. Okay? So rightly so that we want to put some distance between us and the apostles. We are not apostles and we do not have the signs of apostles. Do you know that? J.R. Or, uh, or, or Brett Jeter... Uh, you know, they don't go to work every day and Jr. empty out his physical therapy clinic and, and Brett Jeter empty out uh, University Medical Center because they're, they're just walking down the hallways and their shadow is falling on people and people are getting healed. That does not happen at Grace Community Church. I'm sorry to, to bust your bubble, but we, we want to be really out front that that stuff does not happen here. We're not apostles and we don't have the signs of the apostles. We want to put some distance between us and the apostles. Now, qualifier. That does not mean at Grace Community Church and as disciples of Jesus that we don't believe in miracles or God displaying His power in this world. We'll come back to that. Last. But what it does mean is that we reject counterfeit messengers who claim apostolic miracles 
for themselves today. We look at them and on the authority of God's word, we say you are a fake. You are a counterfeit. You are a false apostle. And so I want you to think about what what passes today for Christian faith healing. What's going on in our culture in this area? And we're constantly being told by, by, by certain sects of the Christian, Christian church that this stuff that we're doing is like that stuff in the book of Acts. And I want to ask you, is that true? Is that true? Is the charismatic church emptying hospitals in Jackson, Mississippi today? Is it true? And in fact, I want you to consider how different... The miracles that were being told happen today are from the miracles of Holy Scripture. Think about that. One of the hot new things now, and it's really not a new thing, happened all the time in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, was something called, uh, at healing services, specifically leg lengthening services. You know that? That was a real hot thing in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Come to this service and your leg will grow longer. And we're seeing another manifestation of that in our generation and in our culture. People walk in the streets and instead of preaching the gospel of the guilt of man, the holiness of God, the, the atoning death of Jesus Christ and calling all nations to repentance and faith. We're seeing people say, you know, uh, sit on this bench and we're seeing people hold their hold their legs out in front and. And, and pray in the name of Jesus and a leg grow like an eighth of an inch. And all of a sudden everybody says, uh, behold the power of God. Jesus just made your leg longer. Okay? I want you to think about how subjective that is. The miracles in scripture are not subjective. Think about what we just got told in Acts chapter 4. A man was lame for 40 years. He never walked a day in his life. His, his, all the muscles in his legs, all those neurons and synapses never fired one time. His legs are like a bowl of mush. He has never walked. He's crippled. He's lame. And all of a sudden, in the name of Jesus, there's a command given. Rise and walk. And the man who was lame starts skipping and jumping and praising God in the middle of a Jerusalem temple. It's like he's doing jump rope in the temple. Never walked before and he's springing on legs like they're brand new. And that miracle happened in such an obvious way that nobody in that temple said uh, that a miracle didn't happen. Nobody said that. Okay, It was really clear to everybody there that a miracle happened. And what we're being told to believe today that Jesus is making people's legs longer happens in a chiropractor's office every single day of the week. Happens in a physical therapist's office almost every single day of the week. And these faith healers are saying, look, Jesus made their leg grow. But you know something that you don't see? If they have the gift of making legs grow, you don't see somebody amputated at the knee that grows a new leg. Do you know why? Because that's not subjective. That would be an objective display of supernatural power from God. And the question is not, can God do that? The question is, does he do that today? So I want us to put some distance between us and the apostles and call out the counterfeit that we're constantly seeing in our generation. Counterfeit works of the Holy Spirit. Number two, how should we live? We should put great emphasis on the message of the apostles. Why? Because it was a message attested by miracles. 
We should put great emphasis on the message of the apostles because it was a message attested to by miracles. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. We should give emphasis, great emphasis, to the message of the apostles because that's the message that was confirmed by signs and wonders. And what that means for you today is that if you are one who rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you reject the message that was confirmed by signs and wonders. You reject the message that God authenticated and you are in great danger. Great danger. And what that means to us who preach the gospel is just a good reminder to us that the message that we preach is the apostolic gospel, not the amended gospel. You catch that? Why do we preach the apostolic gospel and not the amended gospel? And one of the answers to that question is because the apostolic gospel was confirmed by miracles, signs, and wonders. The amended gospel has been confirmed by nothing other than Satan. Okay? And another thing that's a good reminder for us here, talking about giving emphasis to the message of the apostles, the message that was confirmed by miracles. This is another reason why we don't preach our testimony. Do you understand that? Maybe somebody's never told you this before, that our mission is to not go out into the world and tell our testimony. Okay? That is not the mission of the church. Jesus did not send us to go tell our story. Your personal testimony of what God has done in your life. What did Jesus command us to do? Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Your story. Mine, mine too. Okay? Your story was not confirmed by signs and wonders. You know that. Your story was not confirmed by emptying out sickness from a metropolitan area and a resurrection from the dead. But His was. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And this is what we're supposed to emphasize and give attention to. Number three. Number three. This will finish us up for today. How should we live? How should we live? I submit to you that we should pray for God to move in power. Look at verse 16. We are told in verse 16 that these healings included people being set free not only of physical sickness, but also from unclean spirits. Do you know that we still live in a world that's plagued by sickness and demons? That's our world. How should we live? And I'm submitting to us that we should boldly stand against sickness and demons with prayers of faith in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Does the Bible say that? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. What does the New Testament teach us that we are to do in response to sickness? Turn to James chapter 5. How are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to respond to sickness in this world and in the church? James chapter 5 verse 14 
Here's the question. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Brothers and sisters, answer this question. Does God heal today? James chapter 5, does God heal today? And the answer is yes, he does. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Qualifier, he's not doing it by shadows. But we're told how God moves in power. Prayer of faith. What do you do? Is anybody among you sick? Go to God. Go to God and ask God for healing. Ask God for healing. This is not a promise in James 5 that every person that you pray for will be healed. It is not. That is not a promise in James 5. But it is a promise that some of the people that we pray for will be healed. Do you understand that? That's how we should live. We should ask God to heal. We're not telling God what to do. We don't have a mathematics formula that we take to God in our prayer closet. We obey God's word in humility. And if people are sick, we lay hands on them and we ask God to heal them. God going to heal everybody? No. But look at that text of scripture. We have a revelation. This is our God. Our God has revealed himself as a healer. This is, this is the pivot of the New Testament of how you should respond to sickness. This is God's character. Over and over again in the miracles of Jesus, the healings of Jesus, we find this phrase that, he, that his compassion was stirred. That's how God feels towards human sickness, compassionate. We have a compassionate God. In the Old Testament, God is described as the God who takes away, who heals us of our diseases. Does the Bible say that or does it not? It does. This is who our God is. This is who our Father is. So this is an encouragement to us. We don't have a math formula, do this and this will happen, but we know God. And we ask God in the name of Jesus to come against sickness, to heal from sickness. And so think about this. A church that never prays for people to get saved, they're not going to see people get saved. Do you understand that? But a church that prays for people to get saved is going to see more people saved than a church that does not. Now carry that same idea into, into praying for healing. Churches that ask God to heal the sick are going to see God heal the sick more than churches who never ask God to heal the sick. It's as simple as that. We are to pray and ask God to move in power. Okay? Not a math formula, but this is the character of God. And I wonder if that is uh, an uncomfortable thing for you. Okay? We, you, know, you know, we're talking about what seems to be clear instruction. And I wonder if that would be an uncomfortable thing for you to consider, but... Uh, and maybe that would sound something like this. Well, I don't know if I should ask for healing from God because I don't know if it's God's will for me to be healed. Okay? I don't know if I should ask God for healing for this person because I don't know if God will. Okay? But think about how silly that would be if you applied that same logic to praying for people to get saved. Think about how silly that would be. 
I don't know if I'm going to pray for my neighbor to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ because I don't know because I don't know if he's chosen and elect and I don't know if God's going to save him. So because I don't know if God's going to save him, I'm not going to pray for my neighbor to get saved. You see how silly that is. Okay, we don't have math formulas, but we know who God is. And as we pray for these things, we're going to see periodic answers to prayer according to God's will. Can't make him do it, but we can ask him to flex his power in our midst. So I want to encourage us towards that, okay? That we would be a church that prays for the sick. This is a biblical thing, okay? Don't let people hijack this in your mind. This belongs to the church. If anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Last thing. What about demonic oppression in our world? How are we to live in response to that? Again, Scripture tells us that we are boldly to resist all the works of Satan in the name of Jesus. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll close with this. Ephesians 6, 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So the thing that I want you to see so clear in both of these examples is that we partake of the power of God through prayer. Okay? We're not in the age of shadows falling. We're in the age of prayers of faith. We do serve a God of power. And we will be instruments of that power to the degree that we pray. Desperate prayers of faith. And so look at that text in Ephesians 6. How are we supposed to... To resist all the works of the evil one. Well, it tells us that we got some weapons. Things like the shield of faith in the left hand. Uh, things like the helmet of salvation on our head. Things like the sword of the spirit in our right hand. And then think about this. So I'm suited up. What do I do? I got weapons. What do I do? And then in this passage on spiritual warfare, it tells us how to use this stuff. Look at what it says. It shows us suited in the armor of God. And then we come to these words, praying at all times in the spirit. Think about that. God just told you how to swing that sword in your hand. God just told you how to use that shield to extinguish some darts. You do it through prayer. All supplication, all prayer. This is how we resist the evil one. Through prayers of faith. In the name of Jesus. I want to close with just a more personal reminder. Okay. To every married person in the room. And every parent of children. Every married person in the room. And every parent of children. If you don't fit those two categories. This reminder is still good for you. Okay. I want us to have a reminder. About this word that we bump into in verse 16. And the word is unclean spirits. Unclean spirits. And this is a reminder for us that we live in a world where the Bible teaches us that the, the demonic realm is real. Okay? And as 
spouses and as parents, I want you to think about, we are taught from this text and other places, that these spirits um, have access to human beings. Various degrees of access. And then I want us to think about that word unclean. That's an interesting word to describe a demon. It describes a morally filthy one in the sight of God. Moral filth. If God is light, these demons are darkness with no light. Morally filthy before God. And I want you to be reminded as a spouse and as a parent that these demons want access to people that you care about, to people that you are responsible for, and you're supposed to be resisting the works of Satan in the lives of your family, in the lives of your spouse, in the lives of your children. What does this look like for you? Taking the sword of the Spirit, taking the shield of faith, and going to war in prayer for your wife and for your kids and for your local church. Is there a place for that in your life? Because that's an appropriate response for someone to live in the power of God. Coming against the works of the evil one. And I'll say this, okay? I'll say this, they want access. And if your only grid for spiritual warfare is demon possession, you're in trouble. I'll say that again. If your only grid for spiritual warfare is demon possession, you're in trouble. For starters, that word never shows up in the Greek New Testament. The word is demonized. People that are demonized. And there are varying degrees that these unclean spirits have access to different people's life. And so if your only grid is, yeah, I believe in spiritual warfare and I'll do that stuff. When demons begin speaking through a human being's vocal cord, you're in trouble. If that's your only grid to wake up and let the sparks fly, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. We have a crafty, subtle enemy that works 90% of his schemes are under the surface. Are you resisting them? At all these different layers of satanic um, temptation, satanic oppression. Are you coming against it in the lives of your family, your wife, your husband, your children, your local church? Are you resisting him at every single turn? Same principle holds true. Okay, The church that prays and resists Satan, guess what? That's going to be a church that has victory over Satan and demons. More so than a church that ignores Satan and demons. And so our call today in responding to the power of God and how this power works out itself out in the Christian life is prayer. Prayers of faith. Bold prayers of faith. Persistent prayers of faith. This is how we experience the power of God. A prayerless church will be a weak church and we do not want to be a weak church. We want the power of God displayed in this church. Let's close with that. Let's ask God to help us. Father, we thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself and your nature to us. God, I pray for every person in this room, Lord, that you give them something helpful from your word today. And God, I pray that if there's anything that was not helpful, Lord, that you would, that you would help them to discern it, Lord. Help them to to test everything and only hold fast to what is good, what is from you. Lord, we ask for you to help us in this area. We want to be a people 
that is marked by your power, Lord. We want you to be the living God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, we pray and we ask you to glorify your name, glorify your power to save, especially at Grace Community Church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.